Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's guest is someone I met through a friend in my writing group. Martel Catalano was diagnosed with a rare eye disease, retinitis pigmentosa, which over the years led her to create a community and support group called Beyond My Battle. So welcome, Martel. Hello. So happy to have you here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So I'm originally from outside of New York City, right near U Harper, but I currently live in upstate New York um, in Saratoga Springs. It's about halfway between New York City and Montreal, so it's a nice natural area that I sort of chose to live in to cultivate a sense of calmness in my life. I am a public speaker, writer, but most importantly, I am the co-founder and the executive director of a nonprofit called Beyond My Battle, which we have a mission of helping anyone living with any kind of serious illness or disability manage their emotional stress. So yeah, that's what I do for a living. And we're about a year and a half into founding Beyond My Battle. And it's been such an incredible experience. I love it. When we first were connected, I was so excited to learn more about what you do. So I'm excited to share it with our listeners. But let's take a step back about your own health. You have a rare eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa. For those listeners who don't know, and obviously me, can you describe what this condition is and how it affects people? Yeah, absolutely. So retinitis pigmentosa, which is just often commonly called RP, is a degenerative uh, retinal disease. It's genetic. And essentially what it is, if you remember from your high school science classes, you have your rods and your cones in your eyes. Retinitis pigmentosa is sort of a dying off of the rods in your eyes. And rods, for those of you who don't remember your science class, are the... Me, for sure. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I would have forgotten if I didn't have this condition. But um, yeah, science was not my, my strong suit in high school. But the rods essentially control light and dark and your peripheral. So those living with RP have no night vision. We are night blind. And um, we also have limited peripheral vision, typically tunnel vision and the degenerative progressive nature of the disease is what causes that visual field to get smaller and smaller over the course of one's life, typically leading to legal blindness. So again, it's a degenerative disease. I have a recessive gene. Some people have a dominant gene. They say that the dominant gene can tend to be a little bit more of an aggressive, you know, symptoms, but that's the general nature of it. Yeah. And so what kind of symptoms were you experiencing before you got this diagnosis? I was about 13 at that time. And what I noticed first was a loss of night vision. So, you know, playing outside with my friends, doing typical kid stuff, I just started to slowly realize that 
I couldn't see the way they could when we would play after the sun went down. And that was how I brought, you know, the awareness to my parents. And we shuffled around between a few doctors before getting the diagnosis. And then later in life, I would say more like college, I started to notice the severity of the loss of my peripheral vision. How long did it take for you to get that diagnosis from the time that you realized that something wasn't right? You know, I was so young, it's hard for me to remember, but I feel like it was fairly quickly. My parents are sort of doers. And um, when we went to the general eye doctor, he said that he couldn't diagnose such a such a thing. And I think he knew probably, but I don't think he felt comfortable diagnosing it as um, just the guy who was writing my glasses prescription, basically. So it was first him and then one other doctor. And then finally, I ended up at um, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. But I wouldn't say it took longer than a few months. Again, we were my parents were pretty persistent about it. Well, you brought up a really interesting point, which is, I think a lot of doctors out there may have heard about certain conditions, but they're not really experts in them. And I think that's the case with my condition and a lot of other people that we've had on the show previously. You know, you go see a doctor, they think you may have Lyme disease, or they think you may have an autoimmune disease. But if it's not their expertise, they're like, okay, we're going to refer you to a specialist because this is not what we do. And I appreciate that because if they don't really know, you don't want them to be the one that's giving the diagnosis. Oh, definitely. It's really important to find a specialist. And, you know, I know not everyone has access to, quote unquote, the best of the best. And it can be hard to find those appointments. But I do encourage people to seek out a specialist because, you know, they've been probably, for instance, my doctor has been studying just this condition for like his whole life. And he's, you know, 60 something. So that's wild. I mean, it's so funny to think about people like dedicating their lives to one condition or one real specialty. So you get this diagnosis and then what? Were there any types of treatments or things that would help you manage it? So no, the thing about RP is there is no known cure for it. Um, there's some vitamin regimens that are recommended to me. For instance, the most popular thing to do with the diagnosis is to take a high dosage of vitamin A. It's pretty much the only thing that has been studied and proven to slow down the degeneration, not bring back any vision, of course. But there are some, yeah, more like holistic things, but there is no remedy. Uh, There's a lot being done present day in 2019 with stem cells and really remarkable work that's being done to essentially restore vision for people. But back then, we knew that there was nothing to do aside from take the vitamin A and kind of go about our lives. So that sent me down a path of what I like to call denial and disassociation, because I just really didn't think about it. And during my youth at all, like, I, I think I would just tell people, oh, I'm night blind. And not that I have a disease. I I didn't hide it, but I also didn't talk about it. It was pretty obvious if you were around me in the dark that there was something different. I would fall or trip or need to hold someone's hand. And uh, that was obvious, but I never talked about like, this is going to someday take my vision or this is also the other symptoms that are associated with it. It was really denial, which ended up manifesting 
in a lot of other illnesses in my life, actually. So what were those other illnesses? What else changed for you in getting this diagnosis and obviously over time, seeing how it affected you? So first, I would say, you know, the denial manifested in anxiety and depression. Um, I started to just try to find other problems in my life. And I would create problems in my life that I could pinpoint as a problem or think something that I could essentially fix. I always had drama going on. I had eating disorders. I was really, really in a dark, dark place of depression and anxiety bouncing off of each other. I just would knock it out of my bed for days. And when I did, I was totally miserable. Um, the depression in high school and morphing into and kind of always going back and forth between anxiety that lasted through college and after college. And on a physical level, it was the harboring of the stress and the denial of it all really, I believe, created some physical ailments. For me, it was mostly gastrointestinal issues. We know now, I mean, the brain gut connection is so huge and we can't even open Google without seeing it everywhere. But it's very clear to me now what was going on was that I was not addressing the stress in my life. I was pushing it aside. And as a result, it was turning into digestive issues and um, emotional health issues as well. So at what point did you stop sort of denying that you had this condition and start taking control of your health? I was probably like 25. So I'm about to turn 30. It was almost five years ago that I was working a really high stress job in New York. And I was going um, on and off the bus, on and off subways. And I started to notice what my stressors really were, like the movement and the tripping over people's feet and tripping over people's dogs or children. And there was a lot going on for me with like social anxiety of physically bumping into people and then having to deal with the repercussions of them not seeing that I'm visually impaired and yelling mm -hmm. at me or, or scoffing at me. And so that was just every day, like I would have fear getting off the bus and you know, fear leaving my office to go back and walk the few blocks to get to the public transportation. And I would get off every day and, and basically just cry or have an anxiety attack or, you know, sleep forever. And I was like, this isn't just, you know, my work being stressful, because I started to do what I had been doing my whole life, which was, you know, redirect the stress to something quite obvious, quite fixable, quite targetable and be like, oh, my job sucks or, oh, you know, I hate New York City, things like that that were within my control. And instead of addressing the one thing that was totally out of my control. And I realized suddenly that I was doing that. I mean, I wouldn't say I did it all on my own. My mom is a psychologist and she finally started picking up on these cues too. So together we were like, we need to really address RP. We need to really lean into the fact that this is happening. This is getting worse. And um, what can we do to manage the stress? We can't change this disease. This disease has no cure. This disease is worsening. And what can we do? So I ended up starting to practice yoga, meditation, um, very 
religiously and seeing immediate impacts on not only my stress levels, but my gastrointestinal issues, my emotional health, all these things that I was just being coming more self-aware. And through that self-awareness was able to better manage my own stress. So again, I would say to return to your original question, around the age of 25, around five years ago, I started to go down that path. It's amazing that you, you know, took control over your health and recognized that you had to do things given that there's not a cure, but what are the things that could help you mentally, physically in your body, given that no one else has any sort of answers for you? Did you ever connect with other people who had this condition? Um, Not at that age. And, you know, that's a huge part of the story of starting the nonprofit Beyond My Battle. You know, I really felt at that age that I was too afraid, too afraid to see other people who potentially had it worse off than me, too afraid to see how this disease worsens with time, you know, too afraid to see people my own age or not much older than me using a white cane or having a guide dog. So I didn't really reach out and try to connect with people. As of today, I actually have a few friends that I consider dear friends of mine who have my same condition that I've met digitally online. It's pretty rare. It's hard to meet someone in, you know, walking down the street who has the same thing as me. But back then, no, I I really was not, it was more stress inducing for me to go into that realm of meeting people who have my same diagnosis. Yeah, I totally relate to that. It's such an interesting concept because on episode 45 with Sarah Harris, I talked to her about how she went to this skin camp and it was all kids that had skin issues. And I remember just being totally fascinated when she told the story about it, but I'm going, At that age, in my preteen years, the thought of possibly connecting with kids around my health and my issues was so foreign to me and so not what I was interested in doing. I wanted to live a normal life. And in her case, her dermatologist said, hey, you should try this out and meet other kids that are going through similar stuff as you are. But everyone's in different places in their lives of what they need. And obviously for you and for me, it was later in life trying to find that connection and obviously with creating Beyond My Battle, helping people, you know, deal with this stuff. I want to go back to what you were saying about the whole bus concept and train concept, because it's a really big thing, especially in New York and major cities. And I think a lot of women who are pregnant and not majorly showing, and obviously all of us with chronic invisible illnesses, people don't see, you know, what we're going through. And there are many times where I'm sitting on the subway and feel like people are thinking, you know, can't she get up for this older person or for this pregnant person? And sometimes I'm physically not able to be standing. I need to sit on the subway and no one would know that because nothing physically is visible on me. So what kind of recommendations or tips would you provide to people who don't have invisible illnesses in a situation like the subway or a bus where for you, you need to sit or you need to like make space for yourself so you don't trip or fall on someone and they don't know what's going on. How can people be more compassionate in those situations without knowing? I think it's, you know, for the other person involved, it's just the always knowing that your neighbor is potentially dealing with something that you can't see. And for a lot of people that will never 
come up until you meet someone in your personal life or have a personal relationship with someone who has an invisible condition. But I'm sure you yourself would attest to when you see someone struggling or you see someone behaving in an interesting way that you no longer make an assumption. For instance, I was at the supermarket the other day and saw a man using a one of those motorized wheelchairs. And then he got up from the motorized wheelchair and got something that he needed and got back in. And I saw another bystander make a face like, why is that guy using a wheelchair if he can get up? And I know now that there's a lot of individuals who suffer from chronic pain or chronic fatigue where they can't walk around an entire supermarket, but can stand up for moments at a time. So it's just that continuous awareness of your surroundings and the differences between all of us. And I'd like to just tack on to this um, a piece of advice for the individual who is going through that situation where they feel that people are not understanding us or people are not looking at us very nicely is for us to slow down and to witness that the other person may not have had that exposure yet to someone who is different from themselves and to not necessarily get so angry or upset with the other person and just kind of have compassion for, okay, they're not there yet. Maybe this is a learning moment for them. Maybe I can be the person to explain to this individual that I have a condition that they can't see. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Felix Gray. Most of us spend a lot of time looking at our cell phone, laptop, and tablet screens. It's a big part of how we live and work. For many people, this can lead to headaches, dry eyes, and blurry vision. That's why some people, me included, turn to Felix Gray. Felix Gray makes blue light filtering glasses that are both fashionable and high quality. Their glasses filter out 90% of high energy blue light and 99% of the glare coming from your screens. When I wear my Felix Gray glasses, I have the Roebling and the Nash, I definitely notice a huge difference in how my eyes feel at the end of the day. As a podcast host and business owner, I'm in some ways tied to my devices, so I feel good knowing that I'm taking care of my eyes when I have a long day of work. They're available in non-prescription, prescription, and reader varieties, as well as adult and kid sizes. I seriously love wearing my Felix Grays and couldn't recommend them more highly. To try a pair for yourself, go to felixgrayglasses.com slash visible. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash visible. You get 10% off when you buy two pairs and 15% off when you buy three or more pairs. And now back to the show. I used to, for instance, with me, I can't see when someone is going to shake my hand or someone is handing me change at the coffee shop. And um, if it's a stranger or somebody I've never met before, they often will look at me like I'm crazy because I don't see their handshake or their hand extended with the change. And I used to walk away from that situation and be teary eyed or feel angry at that person for not understanding. But now I see it as an opportunity to tell that person, oh, I'm visually impaired and I have a really rare condition where I can't see below. And to see the change in their face in that instance is remarkable because no one has told them that before. So 
I always now think of that other person as a teaching moment and as a moment to regulate my stress as a result of it. Thank you for saying that. It's so, so huge to hear a story like that and for people to learn more about these things because how would anyone know? And it sucks for you to have to walk away teary-eyed, but you're the one that's in control in this situation. You know, they don't know better. So that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let's dig into Beyond My Battle. Why did you decide to create this nonprofit? What do you do? What inspired you to do this? So I was realizing, back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, meeting people that have the same condition as me, especially in an online environment, because there's a lot of online support groups out there for respective illnesses. And my friend and I were realizing that the more time we spent in these spaces, the more stressed out we were becoming Um, by seeing people compare notes. And there's a lot of venting that goes on. There's a lot of that conversation about nobody understands me and nobody really offering advice, but just saying, oh, nobody understands me either. And we were like, why are people so negative in these spaces? My friend Nell has cystic fibrosis and her online support group spaces were very similar. And not only that, we were noticing that the more we were there on our own personal level, we would kind of see people who had it potentially worse off than us and allow that to kind of seep into our mental state of mind and be like, oh, am I going to be like that in a couple of years? So we were like, these places are actually making us more stressed than they are helping us. So let's make a support group on Facebook that is all about mindfulness and being more positive about what we are experiencing and being with what we're experiencing, that state of mindfulness and non-judgment that we've been cultivating in our own personal lives. And we realized that there were a lot of other people out there just like us. And the whole key to it was that it didn't have any barrier to entry. It just, you know, as long as you were living with some kind of diagnosis, and even if you were the caregiver for someone, uh, the loved one of someone living with any kind of diagnosis, we were addressing that there are these deep emotional themes of fear and anxiety and frustration and even anger that we all share, no matter the kind of diagnosis that we have. And we wanted to focus on remedying that instead of remedying the uncurable condition that we have, because there is no remedy as we talked about. So, you know, it it started as this support group and then there really became a need for more education around this subject matter. You know, why are these stressors the way that they are? What are the, the strategies we can use to reduce that stress? And most importantly, how can we communicate our stress with our support system so that they can be our support system. As people living with chronic illnesses and disabilities, our most important asset is our relationships. And there's been tons of research around why our relationships are fundamental means of stress management. Unfortunately, a lot of people with chronic illnesses feel that they don't know how to talk to their loved ones and their loved ones don't know how to talk to them. It's a really sensitive subject and there's not a lot of education going on around it. So that is how it became what it is today, which is now a online hub of resources and support for people living again with any kind of diagnosis or being the loved one of someone with any kind of diagnosis. 
I love it. So what kind of language are you using in there that's different than the type of language being used in a lot of the support groups, where, as you said, it's pretty downer language and not so motivating? That's a great question, Harper, because initially we were really focused on using more positive, upbeat language and having more conversations about gratitude and, you know, this sucks over here, but isn't it great that we live in a world with flowers and being more upbeat? But then over the course of time and with its evolution, we have become more focused on types of language that are, I would say, self-inquiry based. So language about what are our limiting beliefs that are keeping us in a place of shame or lack. And, you know, that's not necessarily a positive type of language, but that's the kind of work that we need to be doing in these cases is why do I feel unworthy or why am I insecure? What are my emotional triggers? And again, I wouldn't say it's all about positivity these days, but it's more about um, a movement around holistic psychology and that kind of language, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So when people land on your website, beyondmybattle.org, what are they going to find? Is it like a message board? Is it content? Like what are they navigating on there? So it's not a message board. The support group that we have for anyone looking for a uh, message board type of space that has, again, a diverse and inclusive environment that lives on Facebook. It's a totally private Facebook group just called Beyond My Battle support group. On beyondmybattle.org, one would find our tools and our resources and these very um, curated and specific strategies and methods that we've developed for our audience around managing their stress. So one of the things that you'll find right away on our website is what we've called the emotional e-toolkit, which is a thorough guide through five different research-backed strategies around stress management. And, you know, we're not just saying, hey, you should go meditate, hey, you should go exercise, or you should get outside. It's really focused on the why, and the why specifically, if you have a chronic illness or a disability, or are a caregiver, this is imperative for you. So we've really taken these remedies and these suggestions a step further into this is what it can do for you if you have a chronic illness. For instance, we know that spending time outside is beneficial for everyone, right? It's a stress reducer. It brings our um, magnetic you know, field back to a neutral state. We're part of nature as human beings. But why, when we have a chronic illness, this is a step more important we probably have a compromised immune system. We certainly have heightened stress levels. Being in nature boosts our immune system. It reduces those stress levels back to normal. And then we take it even further and provide exercises, whether it's videos, meditation recordings, exercise guides, journaling prompts. So we have this all built into this very, very thorough and easy to comprehend toolkit. In addition to that, we have some ebooks that we're making that are specifically written for either the individual living with an illness who wants to learn how to calm down and manage their stress and learn about what stress really is and means for them, 
and um, another ebook that we're writing right now for the care partner and how to essentially manage their stress that they can be a good support and be a co-regulator for their loved one. Um, We have a resource library that's about to debut with book suggestions and videos and even products that we recommend for people. So it's currently this online hub and we're actually hoping to make a podcast too. So (laughs) there you go. Yay. Love that. So what's been the most rewarding part of running this organization? Oh boy, that is a tough question because there's just so much to say, but it's probably been connecting with people all over the world, mostly in the U.S., but um, connecting with people who really have been struggling to understand themselves or understand their loved one and to see the changes that they've been able to make by essentially going inward. You know, we're, we're talking about going in and addressing these deep blocks, these emotional blocks that have been keeping us from being happy or being healthy. And we get messages all the time from people or meet people in real life who are saying, you know, I didn't know why I was reacting or behaving this way, but your tools have helped me to realize that I'm stressed. I'm not a bad person. I'm a stressed person. My disease is causing it. I wasn't addressing it the way that I should have. Um, or my child's disease is stressing me and I, I wasn't addressing it the way that I should have. And I've been able to become more at peace with my circumstance now that I've found your organization. So that's been, you know, the messages that we get and have been the most rewarding for sure. That's so cool. I'm sure it's one of the main reasons why you did it was to sort of see the kind of impact you can make on people's lives and obviously how it impacts you being able to do that. So what are some of your hopes for the organization as you grow? So we just actually finished a national survey of people living with serious illnesses and disabilities and caregivers as well. And we found that the void for emotional support was far vaster than we had expected. Um, We found that about 45% of people are in this population. And of those people, you know, like 90% feel that their illness or their disability has a negative impact on their life. Not surprisingly, yeah, not surprisingly of that population, 75% feel that they are not receiving the emotional support they need. And again, not surprisingly, 50% of people reported that their doctors are not addressing their emotional needs. And I hear that a lot. And, you know, again, it's, it's 50%, it's not 90%, but people often come to me with their stories of, I went to the doctor and I said that I'm really stressed. And they said, you know, that's not what I do. I need to treat your condition. And I understand that we're not trying to change the medical system to say doctors need to become therapists. You know what I mean? It's, it's that doctors need to actually just ask how they're doing. There's been tons of studies done on the impacts that you can have on a patient just by asking how they are. And I think there's a huge void there. And what we want is to be that next step in the process where someone says, you know, I'm actually really stressed about this. I just got a diagnosis and I don't know what to do or I don't know how to help my child with this rare disease. And we want to be the place where people can go and or the doctor can recommend people go. And long-term goals for that would be, you know, in-person retreats and online courses that we can do to address those needs and 
start to close that gap. That's fantastic. I love that you did this survey and how much education you're trying to provide to so many different sectors, not just the patient, because obviously there are so many people involved in all things related to invisible Mm -hmm. illness. So you mentioned the importance of the outdoors and physical activity, and you moved upstate. What has that done for you, your mental health and your physical health? I will say that moving upstate was a conscious and deliberate decision on my end to reduce some of the stress. That said, I have met people who, with my condition, love being in a big city like New York because it offers them a sense of independence they can't achieve in a more suburban or rural atmosphere. Where I live is a small city where I can walk to a lot of things on my own because I don't drive due to my visual impairment, but I do have to ask for rides a lot. And so that was kind of the risk I was willing to take. But the benefits for me have been amazing. I spend a lot of time outside gardening and working on a farm that I volunteer at. I, uh, I mean, volunteering has become a big part of my life. My mom used to say to me when I was really depressed earlier in life, when I was like, what do I do? How do I fix this? What's wrong with me? She would say, help other people and you'll start to help yourself. So I didn't listen then, but now I'm very involved in community service and especially on my farm as an effort to be outside and feed people in need. And it's been so rewarding on that end. But yeah, being close to the mountains is great skiing. And um, even though that's starting to become really challenging for me and hiking as well, but knowing that those are things that I can do or just sitting by a lake has been just, yeah, it's been really great. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm so thrilled that you sort of recognized what you needed for yourself and changing the environment being such a big part of that. So how can people learn more about you, the work you're doing and Beyond My Battle? So you can go to beyondmybattle.org to learn more about Beyond My Battle. Um, We also, of course, have a Facebook page and an Instagram and all those great things simply using the Beyond My Battle name. And if you want to learn more about me, I have a personal website. It's just martelcatalano.com. And you can go there to learn a little bit more about my story, um, my transformation, for lack of a better word, as well as my speaking engagements and any writing that I've done are all kind of located there. So amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you, Harper. It's been really nice. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.